You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. We all deal with a desire to be respected, to achieve, to be counted as great. Today we go to the scripture to understand this great debate. Jesus' disciples had a discussion concerning who among them was the greatest. We will look at the great debate from God's word and uncover the issues of pride that plague the disciples and afflict us today as well. Turn with us to Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37, as the pastor delivers the sermon, The Great Debate. Gospel of Mark, chapter number 9. We're going to begin our reading in verse 37 this morning. Most all of us, I'm sure, have heard of Sir Winston Churchill, and we know of of his greatness, we know of uh, his accomplishments. But Sir Winston Churchill was verbally abusing one of his servants one day. And that servant had finally had enough of it. And he finally responded to Churchill using the same tone of voice that Churchill was using with him. And so Churchill asked the servant, Who do you think you are talking to me like that? The servant said, well, Sir Winston, that's the way you talk to me. And Churchill responded, ah, but I am a great man. This was a moment when Churchill had kind of a low time. He didn't display the greatness that he was known for. But apparently in his own mind, he was pretty great, at least compared to that servant that was before him. And we all deal with a certain amount of this desire to be respected, to achieve, to be counted as a person who is great. If not at everything, at least at something, to be known for something, we all have that kind of desire within us. And so today we're going to go to the scripture to understand this great debate that we have within ourselves and that Jesus' disciples were experiencing here in this passage. In Mark chapter number 9, let's begin our reading in verse 33. And he, that is Jesus, came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first... The same shall be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child, and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Last week we saw Jesus return 
from that Mount of Transfiguration. He came down with his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And you remember, he came down to his other disciples having an interaction, having a discussion, a debate of their own, a debate with the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus comes down and asks them, so what are you discussing? In the midst of that, their debate is interrupted by uh, a father whose son was being tormented by a demon. And the disciples had been unable to cast that demon out. And so Jesus cast out that demon and he gives his disciples a lesson about faith. Now it's on the heels of this event that comes another debate, the one that we read about in our text this morning. This is one between the disciples themselves. This is not the disciples against the scribes. This is the disciples amongst themselves having this discussion. Now, verse 33 tells us that Jesus came to Capernaum and he came, it says, to the house or in the house. And so we know that Jesus had a base, a place there in Capernaum where he would go. And perhaps this was even Peter's house here that he went to. But Jesus comes specifically to a place where he would reside there in Capernaum. And he comes into the house and perhaps even uses one of Peter's own children later as an illustration to these disciples. But on the way there to Capernaum, the disciples were having this discussion that was concerning who was the greatest amongst the disciples. So we're going to look at this great debate from God's word, and we're going to uncover this morning some issues of pride that plague the disciples and that affect us today as well. So let's look at, first of all, the issue here in this great debate. What was the issue that we're dealing with? Well, notice verse 33 and 34 once again. He came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. So the issue was that there was this debate amongst the disciples, and that's the word that we have in the King James that says disputed. It's a word that has at its root a word that could be translated as logic in our day. So what they were doing is they were reasoning. There was logic involved. There was a discussion or a debate. You might kind of get the picture here of a courtroom where you have a couple of attorneys and they're both presenting evidence in a case. They're presenting evidence for each side for a determination to be made. And that's what's happening here as these disciples are walking along. They're presenting the evidence, if you will, to each other about who amongst them should really probably be considered the greatest among them. Who was the greatest of the disciples? Now, keep in mind, this discussion, where are they coming from and what have they just heard? Well, you back up to our text from last week, and I want to go back to verse number 30. We didn't spend a whole lot of time with verses 30 through 32, but I want you to notice the discussion that Jesus had just had with his disciples before they go on this journey as they're passing through Galilee and as they're going to Capernaum here uh, to this house. Look at this instruction Jesus had just given them before they had their little debate amongst themselves. In verse 30, it says, And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it, talking about the casting out the demon. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered in the hands of men, and they shall kill him. 
And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. So Jesus had just talked about his own being betrayed, of his being killed, of his resurrection. And they didn't quite get it. The disciples didn't quite understand exactly what he was saying. And they were scared to ask him. So instead, as they're going on their way, rather than dealing with the issue at hand, and Jesus had just talked about his death, they start arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest among them. So now we have, um, not unlike any family situation today, here are these disciples, the death of the one that they're following is at hand, and so what does the family do? They start fighting. They start fighting amongst themselves. Who's going who's to be the greatest? Who's going to be the leader? Who's going to be in charge? Who's going to manage all this stuff? Who's going to be the person that gets recognized? They didn't even wait to the death, did they? They started arguing even before his crucifixion. Now, the debate, it seems, was brought to Jesus to decide. Mark does not include this particular aspect of the story. But according to Matthew's account, you will find the disciples coming and asking Jesus the question, who is going to be the greatest? Who should be the greatest? Now, what Mark reveals to us is when Jesus brings this to their attention that they'd already been discussing this thing, they held their peace. They didn't talk about it. But it kind of reminds me of how children will do sometimes. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this or not. Adults will do this too in the workplace, by the way, because adults in the workplace act like children do at home. You understand that, right? So, So the children, you know, they'll come up to mom or dad and ask a question without giving all the information. In other words, they don't want to tell about the fight that just happened or the disagreement amongst their siblings that just occurred or maybe even what the other parent said. And they'll come and ask the parent a question without all the information. And when they get that answer, especially if it was the answer that they wanted, if it validated the argument that they had just had, they turn around to that sibling and they'd be like, see, I told you, right? You ever heard that? I told you. See, mom or dad agrees with me. This is kind of the picture you get of the disciples now. They've had this debate amongst themselves along the way. It's almost as if somebody comes to Jesus and says, all right, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest? Perhaps they were just waiting for him to name them so they could turn around to the rest of the disciples and say, see, I told you. But one thing that's different about this situation here is that Jesus already knew their hearts. When our children come, sometimes as parents, we have a good idea that that debate was already going on before they came to us, but we don't always know. In this case, Jesus knew their very heart. He wasn't deceived by the question that they brought him at all. In fact, in Luke 9.47, we're told of this account that Jesus perceived the thoughts of their heart. So, the response here was like the child who got caught red-handed. There was nothing they could say or do. Jesus revealed their heart, didn't he? When he turned to them and said, oh, what was it you were discussing along the way? I'm not deceived by the question you're asking about who's the greatest. You've been debating this because I know your heart. 
Christ knows the very thoughts and intents of our hearts. And while it seems easy at times to convince others or even sometimes convince ourselves of the goodness of our hearts, Christ actually knows our heart. He knows that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He alone is the one who knows it. And it's for this sin and for this wickedness that Jesus lived and died, was resurrected, ascended to the Father, and now makes intercession. You see, you can't lie to God about your heart or convince Him of your goodness. You can't put enough evidence out there on the table in the debate to prove to God how good your heart is. Because he knows the opposite to be true. And he uses his word, doesn't he, to reveal that even to us. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And notice this, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God already knows our heart. And by his word, he reveals those innermost parts of our heart, exposes it for what it really is. So the heart of the issue here for these disciples and their debate is who would be the greatest. So the heart of the issue was pride. It's pride. How would you determine who would be the greatest? You see, in their mind, this was a merit-based system, wasn't it? Which one of us has put forth the best, the most, done the most, accomplished the most, seen the most, been here the most? Based on our own works, our own merit, our own abilities. This is how they were judging the matter. I can just imagine what this debate must have sounded like. Can you, can you imagine these guys as they're going along the way talking? I can hear it now. Well, I cast out more demons than anybody else in this group. Yeah, well, I saw more baptisms than you saw. Oh, I spent more time with Jesus. Well, I know more about the law. Well, I saw something on the mountain that you didn't see, but I can't talk to you about that till after the resurrection. Can you just imagine what kind of evidence these guys might have presented to prove who was to be the greatest? And this can happen in any area of our life, including our spiritual lives, including Christianity, including in the church. We can become much like this. We concern ourselves in this life with who is the greatest. In fact, there's a term, I think this was kind of ruled out at one of the, I don't know, one of the colleges or something a while back. But how many of you heard the term goat? And I'm not talking about the ones that's running in your field out there. The goat, the greatest of all time, right? And especially in sports, we like to bring this up. Who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest of all time? Who was the best football player, basketball player, golfer, right? Was Tiger Woods the best or was he not? Is Tom Brady the GOAT or is he not? 
Is Michael Jordan the GOAT? Yes, he is. Or not, right? So there's all of these debates and questions about who is the greatest, but it extends beyond sports. Who is the greatest poet? Who is the greatest actor? Who is the greatest inventor? Who is the greatest president? Who is the greatest sniper or fighter pilot? And on and on it goes, right? We want we concern ourselves so much with who was the greatest. Who was the greatest 80s hairband? I don't know. I'll defer to my wife on that one. You know, it, we concern ourselves with this idea of greatness and accomplishment and who rises to the top. But it's rooted and grounded in our self-worth, our self-accomplishment, our self-validation, because we desire the glory and the power and the success, and we have all of these aspirations. Because deep down, we want our lives to count, right? We want our lives to have some kind of meaning and to show that we've accomplished something. But the question is, do we want our lives to count for the glory of God, or do we want them to count for ourselves? Do we want our lives to count for the glory of God? Or do we want our lives to account for ourselves? So how do we deal with this issue that plagued the disciples and plagues us as well? How do we deal with the problem of pride in our life? Well, Jesus instructs us in that. And so that's what we're going to look at. We, we move now from the issue at hand to the instruction that Jesus gives them. So what is the instruction? Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Now Jesus sets down, this would have been very common for a rabbi or for a teacher of that time to do so. And when the rabbi or the teacher sat down, it means, all right, All of my students sit down around me and listen because I'm about to instruct you. I'm about to teach you something very important. Here is a lesson that you need to get. So the indication was clear. When Jesus sat down, the disciples knew that this was an important lesson that was coming. And they better listen up and they better pay attention. And when Jesus sits down, he calls these disciples to him and he says, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, what Jesus does when he sets his disciples down is first he gives them a problem statement here. He tells them what the problem is. It's their desire to be first. He says, if any of you desire to be first, and that was the issue that they were having, then he gives them a solution. If you desire to be first, if that's your problem, here's your solution. The same shall be last of all and servant of all. If you desire to be first, Jesus says the, the, the solution is to be last. Now, Jesus presents this paradox here, and he does this often in his teaching. I mean, think about it. He tells us if you want to live, you have to die. If you want to save your life, you have to do what? You have to lose it. If you want to be great, you have to suffer. If you want to be first, you have to be last, because the last will be first we deal with our pride in exactly the way that jesus prescribes look at what he says again in verse 35 the same shall be last of all notice and servant of all here's a great way to deal with killing this sin of pride in our life 
become a servant. Serve somebody. When you start serving, what do you have to do with your pride? You see? When I'm serving you, my pride has to take the back seat. Because I have to esteem you above myself. You see, that's how we deal with this issue of pride as we become a servant. In fact, Paul tells us that in Philippians chapter 2, and I might ask you to turn to this one, if you will. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 3. Paul is going to tell us how to behave, and then he's going to use Jesus as the ultimate example of this humility in our lives. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, or pride, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a what? He took the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this is Paul explaining Jesus' example to us of humility. His laying himself aside. Him functioning in, his functioning in this role of servant. But Jesus referenced that very thing. Remember that discussion he just had with his disciples before they took the journey to Capernaum? He just told them what he was going to do. He was going to do exactly what Paul says he did. His face was already set toward Jerusalem. He already knew he was headed back there to die. And he was determined to follow through with the Father's mission, the Father's will. He laid aside his status and stature and place and glory to take upon himself human form, to dwell among us, to be like we are. To suffer and endure something that he never deserved. He showed us that ultimate example of humility. This was nothing about selfish ambition or conceit. In his humility, he gave himself on our behalf, according to the Father's will, which resulted in his exaltation according to the Father's will. This was not Christ exalting himself. This was Christ humbling himself and the Father exalted him. This is the same pattern that Jesus gives for us. It's not about my self-exaltation. It's about my humility. It's about my service. And in due time, he will exalt. So Jesus' instruction here now comes with 
an illustration. We've seen the issue and we've seen Jesus' instruction on the matter. Now Jesus is going to give an illustration to help us further understand the point. Look at verse number 36. It says of Jesus that he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. Whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. So the illustration that Jesus uses is an illustration of a child. We mentioned earlier, perhaps this was even one of Peter's own children. But the term here is important because it indicates that this was not just any child, but this would have been an infant or a toddler. So we're talking about a very, very young child. That's the terminology that's used in the original languages. So Jesus takes an infant or a toddler and he makes this illustration before the people. Now, you've got to understand the common view of a child in ancient days. Infant mortality, it was a different world then. Many children didn't make it, okay? And so when you have an infant or a toddler, oftentimes in the ancient world, they viewed them a little bit differently because they had this reality in their mind, this child might not make it all the way through. This child might die young. It may never see adulthood. And so, in essence, they regarded them differently. They didn't give them the same kind of respect and attention and honor, perhaps, that you would otherwise, because they still didn't know if it was really going to be viable or not. They didn't know if they were going to make it or not. Seems harsh, but it was the reality of their world. And so there was a bit of a a negative opinion, if you will, of the really young children. They just weren't quite so attached or, or given quite such importance yet. You kind of see this as even the children were brought to Jesus on another occasion. And you remember the parents were criticized there for bringing those children to Jesus. It's like, why would you bother the the Savior? Why would you take up his time with these people who aren't to be regarded yet? These these children, these, these young ones. So they weren't viewed the most positive way. But what was Jesus' example with the children? Jesus said in response, let the children come to me and don't forbid them. Don't don't hinder them. In fact, he told them if anyone would cause one of those children to sin, it would be better that a millstone were tied by his neck, he would be thrown in the depths of the sea, he drowns, he dies. It would be better for them to do that than cause one of these children to sin. Jesus showed his view toward a child, and how it differed from much of what was happening in society at that time. And here he takes this little infant or toddler and picks him up in his arms. The Savior gives specific attention to this child as he makes an illustration for his disciples. And he talks about how we view children. You know, our view of children of babies, toddlers, shows our level of pride or humility. Let me explain. We murder a child in the womb. It's an act of our pride. It's our pride. We are more important than the child, right? Who is prioritized in this state? Uh, The mother wants to have her life, so it's okay to take the child's life. You understand? This is an act of pride. 
When we indoctrinate a young child, when we sexually exploit them, it's an act of our human pridefulness, isn't it? The very pridefulness that led to the fall of Satan, who is the father of all such. It's therefore no coincidence that the leftists of our day who disregard children and their value embrace the murder and abuse of children and align themselves with a group whose banner says pride. It's not by any coincidence that these groups align, that they stand for the same things. They claim pride in themselves, in who they are, in their behavior. And they claim pride in their disregard for life and the well-being of children. But you know, this same attitude doesn't just exist in the leftists and those far fringe groups. But this same attitude is existent. We're more determined to work than to care for our children. Mommies and daddies alike, by the way, in that category. You know, now we think we can't exist on a father's income. We can't take a mother out of the home. And then we, you know, we just relegate child rearing to the state. Just give it over to the daycares and the public schools and let them take care of that. While we go out and work, succeed in the world, achieve great things, make a lot of money, get a bigger house, drive a nicer car, keep all of our cell phones, play all the sports, right? We're not talking about children starving here, so we got to have mom and daddy out working because they don't have any food on the table. No, we're talking about those things that aren't necessary, many of which wouldn't be necessary if mom was at home, by the way. But our pride says that above the good of the children that God blesses us with, above them comes our career, our advancement, our success, our money, and all those other things that we just listed. It shows, really, doesn't it, the level of pride and humility and who we really feel is the greatest? Because what happens? We're putting ourselves and our future and our success ahead of the lowest, the least capable, those who need our care and our guidance and our time and our help, the inputs from us, they take the back seat. All right, I'm stepping on toes and everybody's quiet, so I'm going to move on. Jesus then shows us what is indicated when we receive a child. So we, we saw the issue, we saw his instruction, we saw his illustration. Now he tells us what all of this means. What does it indicate? Our reaction to the child and how we receive the child, what does it show? What does it demonstrate? Look again at verse 37. Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. Now, I want to shed a little bit of light on this because Matthew includes some details in his gospel. And so this is the last place I'll ask you to turn. But in the book of Matthew, chapter number 18, I want you to see just a couple of details that are um, captured here. 
Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse number 1. tells us that at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we addressed this a moment ago. And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, Except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever heaven for shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name, receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. So Jesus talks about the fact that if you want to be great in his kingdom, you can't even come into the kingdom unless you become like the child. Unless you convert it, unless you humble yourself. What is the thing that keeps people from coming to Christ today? Pride. It's pride. We think we don't need him. We think we can do it. We think everything is okay. And our pride prevents us from trusting him. Because our humility is what's required to say, I can't do it. Jesus did it. It's not based on what I've done. It's based on what he did. And Jesus says, you can't even be a part of the kingdom unless you can become like the child, unless you can realize your own helplessness, unless you can realize your need for someone else to do these things for you that you couldn't do for yourself. The little baby knows nothing else but to lay there and cry and scream until somebody picks the baby up to feed it. Or somebody picks the baby up to change it. The baby can't feed himself. The baby can't change himself. And so he cries out to the one who can. You see? But in our pride, we think we can. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't. Until you realize and humble yourself like the child and realize that you must depend upon me, you won't be converted. You won't come into the kingdom of God. But then he says, because he equates the two here in Matthew 18, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now notice, and whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. It seems as Jesus is drawing a parallel here between us not only accepting physically little children and how we respond to them, but also how we respond to infants in the faith. Those new believers, those new converts, those who have humbled themselves, right? Those whom God has brought into the family. They're young. They're new. They're like little spiritual babies. They're like little, little infants that require a lot of time and care and input. And there are some today in, in the church at large who won't give the time of day to those new converts. They spend all their time worrying about the people who are standing on the big stages, who have the large congregations, who have the biggest Twitter accounts, and they're trying to rub elbows with all the giants of the Christianity and the church of today. You see that later on in the New Testament as well, where someone comes into the congregation and we take the wealthy, respected person and we bring them right down front and center. And they take center stage. Why? Why do we do that? Because of what we can get from them. What we can receive from them. What happens with the newborn in Christ, with the infant believer? They need something from us. 
This requires a giving of ourselves. This requires servanthood. This requires humility, doesn't it? Jesus said how you react to little children and how you react to little children in the faith, that's saying a whole lot about really who is great. It says a lot about our pride or our humility. When you receive his children, he says, you receive Christ. When you receive Christ, you're receiving the Father. Romans 12, 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Real easy for us to think about how much we accomplish in the faith, in the church, in our Christian walk. We can brag about a lot of things. How much scripture we've memorized, how many Sunday school classes we went to, you know, and on and on the list can go. But in the end, if we do anything, if we do anything for God, it was not us. It was him. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, Paul is talking about all the members of the body. And how every member of the body is important. Regardless of what their function is. They're very different. And there's no reason for us to get inflated in our ego and pride about those gifts that God has granted to us. Because again, who granted them? They're from God. Not for our glory, but for His glory. It's the chief end of man, isn't it? That we understand from the very beginning is why God put us here to bring glory to Him. And what we do is we steal the glory from God and we want to hoard it for ourselves. So, the great debate rages on, doesn't it? We kill our pride and we take on humility by the grace of God. But the debate really is settled. Since all of our merits fall short. Disciples are trying to figure out who would be the greatest among them based on their merits, but all of our merits fall short. There is one to whom we should strive to bring glory through his power and his grace. So you can't please him in your own power. So turn to Christ today. Stand upon his merit. Then live for him in his grace. Kill your sin of pride. Humble yourself in service. Do not exalt yourself, but exalt the one who will also exalt you according to his good pleasure and his time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, as always, it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. God, we recognize this morning that you know our hearts better than we know our own hearts. And we confess this morning that our hearts are corrupt. And we were in need of a Savior. And God, we confess that we deal with the sin of pride on a daily basis. We concern ourselves with our own interest. 
We fail to concern ourselves with the interest of others. God, forgive us. God, may we serve those that society might even consider the lowest of the low. Those who are helpless, those who are hurting, those who can do nothing for themselves. Because God, every single one of us have been in that place. There was nothing that we could do for ourselves, and yet you came among us and rescued us from our sin. Redeemed us when we could not redeem ourselves. God, may we show that type of mercy and grace toward others. Forgive us, God, we've been about building our own kingdom rather than being servants of yours. Thank you for the convicting power of your word and your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness that you offer and for the power that you give us to overcome sin in our lives. Thank you for the grace that we have to be able to live lives for your glory, for the grace that we have to accomplish great things, not in our power, but in your power, and to accomplish great things, not for our glory, but for yours. God, help us to be careful to concern ourselves in this life with nothing more than humble service to the kingdom, leaving the ultimate exaltation into your hands and your time, knowing that the judge of all the earth will always do right. Thank you for your move among us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.